Welcome to the National Botanic Gardens at Glasnevin and this audio-guided tour to some of the fascinating and unusual plants and stories in the gardens. I'm Mary Mulvihill from Ingenious Ireland and with the Director of the Gardens, Matthew Jebb, it's our pleasure to guide you on this tour. We have several audio-guided walks at Glasnevin, each one a different colour. If you don't already have an information leaflet for your tour, you can get one at the visitor centre. We've designed this tour of the glass houses especially for cold or rainy days and to be wheelchair accessible. In the Palm House, if the steps into the east and west wings are a problem, just stay in the centre while we tell you about the orchids and cacti. The tours last about 40 minutes to an hour and they all start just inside the main entrance gates. From there, you simply follow the coloured sign for your tour. Then play the appropriate audio track when you get to the next point of interest. At the end of each track, you'll hear this. And that's the signal to pause your player, move to the next location, and then press play to resume the story. Now, if you're ready, our tour starts just inside the main entrance gate, Join us there to hear about how the gardens began over 200 years ago. Green One Gardens and Glass Houses The gardens at Glasnevin were established over 200 years ago in 1795. Today they have an international reputation and they're justly famous for the Turner curvilinear range of glass houses, which is the main focus of this green tour. The glass houses were begun in the 1840s when the gardens needed somewhere to grow and display their increasing collection of exotic species, as today's director Matthew Jebb explains. David Moore was anxious to bring tender plants to Dublin and that meant he needed a series of glasshouses with different temperatures and humidity levels. In the 1840s, the approach at Glasnevin was firmly on botany and science and no longer on farming and agriculture as it had been when the gardens began 50 years before. The gardens were established by the Royal Dublin Society or the RDS as it's still popularly known and the gardens were intended to promote scientific knowledge in the various branches of agriculture. The main mover was Dr Walter Wade, the Dublin Society's Professor of Botany and the first director here. The Speaker of the Irish Parliament, John Foster, was a keen gardener and thanks to his support the Parliament provided the necessary funds. They bought an estate in the small hamlet of Glasnevin, some miles from the city of Dublin, and work began. Now, the members of the Dublin Society were well-to-do landowners and farmers, and their priority was agriculture, 
and so in the early years here there were even hay meadows and sheep and cattle grazing. The gardens opened to the public in 1800, but the following year they closed, at least to the public. There were complaints about idle persons who had caused much mischief, and even nursemaids who accompanied children there used language which caused the poor gardeners to blush. After that, people who were not members of the Dublin Society had to be accompanied by the head gardener. Today we're delighted to welcome idle persons and children too. In 1878, the gardens were taken over by the state and they've been a public garden ever since. Today, they cover nearly 20 hectares and over 17,000 different species and cultivars grow here. About 400 of these are rare and endangered and this is part of Glasnevin's most important conservation work today. But it's not just living plants there are also three-quarters of a million dried and pressed plants in the herbarium. The oldest dates from 1661, and this reference collection is of immense value both to people researching Irish flora and internationally. Today, there's also a horticultural college here, run by the agriculture and food agency Chagask, and so the garden's focus has come full circle, even if there are no grazing animals or hay meadows. What exactly is a botanic garden? I mean, what makes this different to any of the other big gardens that you might visit? From the very beginning, botanic gardens combine many roles. At their centre, they've always been about horticulture and demonstration. But gradually, the roles of science, training and education have grown in the past two centuries. Today, plant species around the world face an uncertain future, with the threats of habitat destruction, over-exploitation and unprecedented climate change. Our most recent activities include a greater role in the conservation of our own flora, as well as of plants from around the world. Today, Glasnevin is internationally important and we can be very proud of its many achievements. It's also a lovely place to visit. And the founders, Dr Walter Wade and John Foster, would surely have been pleased. Green too, an architectural treasure. This beautiful glasshouse is one of Ireland's architectural treasures. It's also one of the most important 19th century glasshouses in Europe and it was faithfully restored to its original splendour in 1995 for the garden's 200th anniversary. It's called the Curvy Linear Range because it has both curved and linear components, and it's the work of a Dublin man, Richard Turner, who was one of the great iron masters of his day. Turner also designed glasshouses for the Botanic Gardens in Belfast and at Kew in London, but this one in Glasnevin is his finest work. Turner pushed his materials to the very limit and his wrought iron work was much thinner and lighter than his contemporaries and so his glasshouses could be taller and let in more light than before. They're a beautiful mix of form, function and ornamentation. And if you step back and take a look, you'll see how elegant and modern they are even to our 21st century eye. The glasshouses were built in three phases over a period of about 25 years, from 1843 to 1868. Thousands of prefabricated pieces went into the structure 
and all of the pieces would have been made off-site and then brought here and assembled. It was all very advanced for its time, like some great jigsaw or Lego kit. The upper panes of glass are curved, and each one was moulded to the correct curvature for its position in the building. Most of the ironwork that you see is wrought iron, and that was crucial to Turner's success, because wrought iron is very good under both compression and tension. Other glasshouse designers used cast iron, but that can crack under tension. This building is 12 metres tall at its highest point, and it's over 100 metres long, and it has nearly 8,500 panes of glass. It dates from the golden age of glasshouses in the middle of the 19th century. By then, glassmaking techniques had improved significantly, and you could get relatively big panes of glass, and that meant you could build bigger glass houses. And meanwhile, the great voyages of discovery were returning with exotic plants and people wanted somewhere to grow and display them. And Richard Turner was delighted to help. He was born in Dublin in the rebellious year of 1798 and he came from a family of iron workers. His father and grandfather before him had worked in the foundry business. Turner had his first workshop on St. Stephen's Green between Grafton Street and Dawson Street, but in 1834 he opened his new Hammersmith factory at Balls Bridge, south of the city, on what would later become the site for the Veterinary College, and he had a house there for himself and houses for his workers. But Turner didn't just make glass houses, he also made mundane items like bathtubs and railings and bedsteads, and he exported these around the world. His designs were very advanced for the time, and not everybody liked them. In fact, his design for London's Crystal Palace in 1851 was turned down because people thought it just wouldn't stand up. As it happened, there were problems with this Glasnevin building that emerged over the next century. First, the ironwork corroded in the very humid tropical conditions here. Second, Turner's design couldn't accommodate the thermal expansion that happened on hot days over this very long 100 metre long building and third the east and west wings were never stabilised when they were doubled in size in the 1860s and over the next 100 years they literally started to break apart so that by the time the restoration started the building was ready to collapse and panes of glass were cracking and had to be replaced nearly every day the restoration under the OPW architect Kieran O'Connor was very faithful to the original. Every component was lovingly and painstakingly identified and tagged and dismantled and cleaned and then reinstated. 87% of the metalwork that you see here is original and the rest is all Turner metalwork that was salvaged from Kew when they replaced their Turner glasshouse with a stainless steel replica. Dublin's was a high-tech project and it used precision engineering. And they even recreated the original colour that Turner chose. It's a rich cream colour and it's now called Turner White. The restoration won several international awards and it's a fine masterpiece in Richard Turner's hometown. Green 3, Turkish Delight and Tea Tree Oil
the centre of this east wing and breathe deeply and see can you smell anything. Maybe the sweet scent of Turkish delight or fresh lemons or the antiseptic smell of tea tree oil. On a warm day in here, you can smell all of these and lots more because this part of the glasshouse is packed with aromatic plants. Now, the plants are from hot, dry regions around the world, like the South African bush and the Australian outback and the Mediterranean maquis scrubland. And the kind of species we're talking about here are things like eucalyptus and scented pelargoniums and the tea tree, or melaleuca, that's well known for its antiseptic oil. The tea tree is this tall shrub in the centre of the room with the very feathery-looking leaves and the flaky bark. It's part of the myrtle family, and you could say it's a distant cousin of our own bog myrtle. And why do we get so many aromatic plants in hot, dry places? Well, there's a very good reason, as Matthew Jebb explains. These plants grow in very tough conditions with very poor soils, so they put a lot of work into gathering enough nutrients to grow their leaves, and so they don't want to lose them too quickly, and they make them as inedible as possible by packing them full of resins, gums, and aromatic oils. And these are both indigestible to insects, and also they act to reduce the effect of fungal attack. To our senses, they're mostly very pleasant smells. The oils are produced from special glands in the leaves at the base of the leaf hair. So when you brush against one of the leaves, you trigger the plant to release some of the oil. And you can try that now if you brush gently against some of the leaves around you. And you should release all kinds of smells. We get a great range of smells from the pelargoniums, the classic conservatory plant smell of Turkish delight. But others can smell like apple, roses, peppermint even ginger. Not all of them are pleasant, I'm afraid. Some smell a bit like turpentine. You don't just get aromatic plants in hot, dry regions. We also find them on other poor soils like bog and heathland. Bog myrtle is one of the scented plants that grows naturally in Ireland. Its oil has quite a pleasant smell and it's very effective as an insect repellent, which is quite useful if you find yourself being attacked by midges in the centre of a bog. People have been using the essential oils from these plants for centuries. Tea tree oil is widely used as an antiseptic, for instance. Some of the oils are used for their smells in aromatherapy and in potpourri. Some of them are used for pest control. And some of them are even used in cooking. Put a leaf from a lemon-scented pelargonium and it'll add a lovely lemon-scented flavour to your cake. Green for Proteus and Plate Tectonics. Standing here at the end of this glasshouse, we're surrounded by plants from three continents, South America, Africa and Australia. When European botanists first saw these plants, they were struck by one particular family, the Proteaceae, These are named after the Greek god Proteus, who could change his appearance at will. So they all look very different at first sight, with their huge compound flowers. We have Banksias from Australia, Proteas from South Africa, and Lamartia from South America. But when we look in detail, they all share exactly the same flower structure, a feature that botanists rely upon to identify relationships among plant groups. Looking at these plants in 1853, the Kew botanist Joseph Hooker suggested that since the Proteaceae family were only found in the Southern Hemisphere and not in the Northern Hemisphere, then there must have been some historic link between these southern land masses. 
He even suggested that land bridges once connected Australia to South America and to Africa. Geologists, however, couldn't find any evidence for these, and it wasn't until the 1960s when continental drift and plate tectonics became widely accepted that we had an explanation. The continents had literally been stuck together in the past. Botanists had the evidence for an intimate connection between these landmasses 100 years before the geologists had. Today we recognise this and many other plant families in the southern hemisphere had their origins in Gondwana land, a supercontinent that broke up into India, Africa, South America and Australia. This happened some 120 million years ago and yet the history of this momentous geological change is still seen in the distribution of these plants around the world. Green 5, the plants that eat sheep. The big spiny plants at the centre of this display of South American plants come from the foothills of the Andes. They belong to the genus Puya, members of the pineapple or bromeliad family. The biggest of all is known as the Queen of the Andes, and its flower spike can reach 10 metres in height, one of the most fabulous sights in the Andean grasslands. The flowers are often richly coloured in blues, purples and reds, and nectar literally pours from them, which is to attract the hummingbirds that they rely upon for pollination. Because it's so cold where the Puyas live, and there can be no other shelter, birds often make the mistake of trying to huddle down amongst the leaves of the Puyas at night. If you look at the ferocious thorns on the edges of the leaves, you can see how this can end in disaster. The thorns point inwards, so it's easy to push into the centre, but impossible to come out again. In the wild, it's common to find the carcasses of birds that have become entangled in the thorns. Their bodies drop to the ground, enriching the soil and providing food for the plant. The introduction of European sheep to these savannas has led to an unfortunate conflict since sheep will try to huddle in under the plants on cold nights. Their wool gets entangled and can lead to a lingering death. In effect, the plant is literally eating sheep. The puyas are quite flammable, and many species are now threatened with extinction by shepherds who set fire to the savannas to burn out the plants and protect their animals. Green 6. Bats, birds and butterflies. Rhododendrons, especially these species from the mountains of Southeast Asia, have an incredible range of pollinators, from bees and wasps to butterflies, moths, birds and even bats. What's amazing is that we can tell what pollinates a flower just by looking at it. Although we usually only associate Charles Darwin with his book on the origin of species, he was also a tireless botanical investigator and published at least eight major works on plants. Amongst these was a book on the pollination of flowers. Darwin watched plants and their visiting pollinators carefully and realised that flowers had a particular syndrome of characters which were always associated with a particular pollinator. For example, he noticed that a flower like honeysuckle, that's white with star-shaped petals, a long flower tube, and releases a strong sweet scent in the evening, is pollinated by moths. Others, with broad, flat, coloured petals, and nectar that was easier to reach, were pollinated by butterflies or bees. 
In this particular bed, we have four kinds of rhododendron flowers. The yellow flowers of Rhododendron MacGregorii and others are perfect platforms for butterflies to land on. And the shallow flowers make the nectar easy to reach. Birds are attracted to red. This explains why so many berries are red. These two have long curved flower tubes and the birds are attracted to them and feed on the nectar at their base. The large white flowers the size of an ice cream cone of Rhododendron canori have a musty sweet smell and they attract nectar feeding bats. Darwin investigated many tropical plants in greenhouses and understood how to read the pollination syndromes. Glasnevin sent him material for many of his studies. Green Seven, the tree with no leaves. This has to be one of the most unusual trees in Glasnevin. It's a conifer, a pine tree that grows in New Zealand and New Guinea, and it's popularly called the celery top pine. It looks like it has a dense covering of leathery dark green leaves, but it doesn't. This tree has no leaves at all. Matthew Jeb. What you think are leaves are actually flattened twigs. They look like leaves and they perform the same functions as leaves, but they aren't leaves. They're flattened green twigs or shoots, and they've become highly specialised over millions of years and evolved to contain lots of green chlorophyll pigment, and it's these twigs that do the photosynthesis for the tree. Only in the young seedlings do we see what we think of as normal leaves, and even then they're small and needle-like, about two centimetres long. The scientific name for these trees is phyllocladus, which literally means twig leaves in Greek. Actually, it's not quite true to say that this tree has no leaves. It does have leaves, but they are very, very small. They're tiny scales, only a couple of millimetres long, that you can see along the edge of the green twigs if you look. The leaves are green only for a very short while, and then they turn brown, so they can be hard to spot. But if you take a close look at one of the leaf-like structures now, you should be able to see these very small, scaly leaves along the side. And why has this unusual arrangement evolved? The great beauty of evolution is that it proceeds by a process of elimination. What we see around us today are species that have survived. They're the success stories of the geological timescale. This tree clearly benefited from having tough, hard-to-eat twigs rather than leaves. So that is what it's ended up with today. You could say it's made a great success of dispensing with leaves. Some species are small shrubs, but a few are 100-foot giants. Their peculiar leaf-like twigs has meant foresters often refer to them as celery-top pines from a vague similarity to celery. Green 8. Palm Trees and Philosophy Step into the great palm house and you're stepping into a tropical rainforest. This wonderful structure is the tallest building in the gardens. It was built in 1884 and it's easy to see why it's called the Great Palm House. It soars 20 metres high and if you crane your neck, you'll see it's full to the top with tall tropical plants. Amazingly, 
This was a prefab building. All the pieces were made in Scotland, near Glasgow, by a Scottish company called Boyds of Paisley, and then the pieces were brought here and assembled in 1884. Before this lovely wrought iron building, there was a timber palm house here, but it was damaged in a storm. And take a minute now to admire all the elegant metalwork. Glass houses like this were an important part of botany and horticulture in the 19th century, because gardeners and scientists could now control things like temperature and humidity and experiment with growing conditions for the new and exotic species that plant collectors were finding, like the bananas you can see growing here now. But glass houses also keep people warm, and one person who liked to come and sit here in the tropical warmth was the Austrian philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein. Wittgenstein spent quite a bit of time in Ireland between 1947 and 1949. He stayed in Dublin and in Wicklow and in the west of Ireland. And when he was in Dublin, he liked to come and sit on the steps here and write. Wittgenstein trained as an engineer and a mathematician before switching to philosophy. He has been described as the philosopher of poets and composers and he had just retired from his position as Professor of Philosophy at Cambridge in England when he came to Ireland in 1947. He would surely have enjoyed the engineering that went into this building and the natural mathematics of the plants around him. There's a plaque that marks his favourite spot on the steps leading up to the east wing where the orchids are. Why don't you take a minute and sit there now? Green 9, Ireland's Orchid First. Orchids have a very special place here in Glasnevin because it was here in the 1840s that orchids were grown for the very first time from seed to flowering stage. And the man who achieved that first was the director at the time, David Moore. And his son and successor, Frederick Moore, developed the orchid collection here into the biggest and best in all of Europe. But why is it so difficult to grow orchids from seed? Brendan Sayers is the person in charge of the orchid house today. Orchid seeds are absolutely tiny. They're like little specks of dust. They have so few cells that they actually cannot germinate on their own. They need the help of a very special fungus, a microscopic fungus, to provide that extra nourishment. Back in the 1840s, when people were starting to try to grow orchids from seed, they would plant the seeds in a fresh, sterile pot, the way you would with any other seed. But that meant that there was no fungus present, and therefore the necessary Support was absent. In about 1845, David Moore tried sowing the seed instead in the same pot as the parent plant. And because the parent had been collected in the wild, it came with the right fungal partner. It can take three years for an orchid to reach the flowering stage, but in 1849, David Moore got the first orchids to flower in cultivation here. Brendan Sayers and his colleagues here have over 2,000 different species of tropical and subtropical orchid growing and there are three rooms in the orchid house. There is a warm room 
where the night temperature never drops below about 15 degrees. That's for tropical orchids that would normally grow at about sea level. And next is the intermediate room, where the night temperature doesn't fall below 12 degrees. And then at the far end, the cold room, and the overnight temperature there can drop to about 10 degrees Celsius. And this is for the tropical orchids that you might find growing high up on mountaintops. Now, many of the species that you can see here come from Belize in Central America, and Glasnevin is the main partner for the Belize Botanic Gardens. Belize is wonderful. It's a small country, coastal country on the Caribbean, and it's only about the size of Munster. The temperature there can be warm, can be very muggy. However, January really is the best time to go. I've been fortunate enough to go there many times to collect orchids, and during the years we have added over 30 species that hadn't been listed for the country. We have a very important association with Belize Botanic Gardens. It allows us as an established botanic garden to help a fledgling botanic garden on its way, Um, basically a big brother situation. You'll also find Irish orchids here at Glasnevin, not indoors in the orchid house, but outdoors in the beds between here and the curvilinear range. We have about 30 species of orchid in Ireland, and you'll find them in every county, flowering from May to September. Beautiful, graceful plants. Brendan Sayers helped to start the Irish Orchid Society, and he's written a stunning field guide to the Irish orchids with a botanical artist, Susan Sex, who has a long association with Glasnevin. Ask to see their beautiful book at the visitor centre. Green Ten, the loneliest plant in the world. This is one of Glasnevin's treasures. It's an elderly cycad, over 100 years old, but technically it's already extinct. So you're looking at one of the loneliest plants in the world. It was discovered in 1895 by a plant collector called John Wood, and it was named after him, Encephalatus woodii. Wood later became director of the Durban Botanic Gardens in South Africa. We bought this particular cycad from a plant dealer in London in 1905, In fact, we still have the original bill of sale, so we know we paid one guinea for it. At the time, it was considered an interesting variety of a more widespread species and only described as a new species some years later. What makes it remarkable is that we now know it has only ever been found once in the wild, and our specimen is known as a pop. That's like a small offset from the base of the original tree. Once John Wood realised that his original plant was significant, he sent collectors back to KwaZulu-Natal to collect the plant he had found there ten years before and return it to the Durban Botanic Gardens. Over the next few years, all the remaining wild plants were transferred to the gardens. Cycads are a fairly primitive group of plants. They look like a cross between a palm tree and a fern with a crown of leaves on top of a sturdy trunk. They were at their peak in the Jurassic period, when dinosaurs are around. This corner of the palm house is packed with cycads, and dinosaurs probably ate plants just like these, so you could say this is our Jurassic corner. 
Cycads are one of the first plants to evolve seeds. They're slow-growing, and typically a plant will only produce a new crown of leaves every second year. It takes them over a century to mature, and even then they only produce a cone every few years. Our biggest plants are a century old, but only two metres tall. Now, although you're looking at a living plant, technically it's already extinct. That's because, just like animals, cycads come in separate sexes. And sad to say, wood cycad only exists as a single male plant. All the specimens in the gardens around the world are identical, so there's no hope of seeds. But there is one possible ray of hope. Botanists have been collecting the pollen of plants in botanic gardens around the world, and they've been crossing it with what we believe is the closest relative. From this, we hope to raise female hybrids, and these will be back-crossed in turn with the original wood cycad. By repeatedly back-crossing it, we would hope by about the seventh generation we'll have almost 99% pure female wood cycads again. The whole process could take several centuries, but our cycads already waited over 100 years, so perhaps it can wait a few more. Green 11, Ireland's banana crop. The banana is such a familiar fruit to many people in Ireland that it's always a thrill for them to see the actual plant on which it grows. And although we call this a banana tree, it is in fact a gigantic tropical herb that comes from Southeast Asia. Bananas form a staple food crop for many people throughout Africa and Asia. The exciting thing for me about a banana plant is the amazing way that it grows, literally inside out. New leaves start their life right at the base of the plant and in the centre, and they grow up through the middle, literally pushing their way through the centre of this stem, which consists of about 20 or 30 leaf bases, all tightly wound round one another, and literally, after two years of growth, bursting at the seams, as you can see. At this point, the banana produces its flowers, and these grow in the same way as the leaf, arising from the very base of the stem, and when they appear at the top there, each night a bract opens, revealing a little bunch of flowers. These have a very strong nocturnal smell, and they attract small nectar-feeding bats that pollinate the wild bananas. Now, commercial varieties, of course, don't have seeds. The bananas we eat at home are completely seedless. In wild banana, they are small, black, almost stone-like fruits, and they have to be this strong to stop the bats destroying them when they're eating the banana. Green 12, a juicy Hollywood story. This is literally the most succulent corner of the gardens. It's home to the succulent plant collections, and these are the very distinctive cacti that come from the Americas and then a whole range of plants from Africa and Madagascar. And amongst these are a couple of euphorbias, and they look amazingly like cacti. In fact, 
People usually call them cacti, but the succulents from the American deserts are completely unrelated to the African ones. The plants are arranged geographically here, so you can quickly see how very different the two groups look. And these plants are a good clue to location. If you were to wake up in the morning and find yourself in a landscape dotted with euphorbias, then you'd know for sure that you were in Africa and not in America. And that's a real problem for filmmakers. Matthew Jeb. Many of the Hollywood films made about the North Africa campaign of the Second World War, such as Humphrey Bogart in the film Sahara and the film The Desert Fox, were actually filmed in the Californian deserts. So the sharp-eyed botanical filmgoer can spot that the plants in the background are actually the true cacti and not the North African euphorbs. To the uninitiated, they look pretty similar. But when you take a closer look, the differences begin to appear. The true cacti have many more spines, and these always arise from a little cushion of short white hairs that you can see on the stem. The euphorbs, on the other hand, have three or four angled stems with smooth-based thorns in little groups of two or three, and they also have a toxic white sap. Cacti and euphorbs may look different, but they've got a very similar form and function, so we can forgive the filmmakers their oversight. That's because they've evolved to face exactly the same problem, how to conserve and store water in some of the driest places on the earth. And they've come up with more or less the same solution. Succulents always have large, fleshy stems as a means of storing water. They also have special features to reduce water loss, like a waxy coating that often makes them appear whitish. The spininess of these plants is important to protect them from grazing animals that might otherwise find them a handy source of water. Having a large fleshy stem is the best way to store water with the smallest surface area to volume ratio, and it shows how nature adapts to the best geometric solution. The pleated surface means that these stems can fill rapidly with water during a downpour, and the surface can expand like a set of bellows without bursting. Cacti and euphorbs look the same because natural selection has come up with the same solution to the hot, arid conditions in deserts on different continents. One of the great delights of evolution is that living things usually solve the same problems, but in subtly different ways. That's nearly the end of this tour, but we hope to see you here again soon. We've other guided tours of the gardens for you to enjoy, and there's always lots to see and discover at Glasnevin throughout the year, even in winter, and a busy programme of seasonal events and activities for every age. Ask at the Visitor Centre or check the event guide on the web at botanicgardens.ie. This was an Ingenious Ireland production written by the Gardens Director Matthew Jebb and me, Mary Mulvihill of Ingenious Ireland. The music you heard was The Last Rose of Summer, recorded by the Thomas Moore Festival and performed by Mairead Hurley and soprano Aoife O'Sullivan. The tour was funded by the Department of Tourism, Culture and Sport under the Cultural Technology Grant Scheme in 2010. Sound production was by Twin Track Media. For more Ingenious Guided Tours and for the smartphone apps for the gardens, visit ingeniousireland.ie. We do hope you enjoyed this tour. Thank you and goodbye.